Hello and welcome to Mrs M's Curiosity Cabinet, a podcast about materials, the making instinct and a craftful life. It's been a wee while since I last joined you for a bit of a chat, hasn't it? There have been several reasons for the hiatus, a mix of micro and macro. This year, insomnia and migraines have meant there has been very little energy in the mental tank. Also, we are living in worrying times. In the UK alone, there are many changes looming that are of great concern to those of us who care about issues like workers' rights, food poverty, food standards, fuel poverty, not to mention environmental protection. In light of this, it has felt very important to direct what little mental energy I had to civic engagement with organisations, projects and campaigns that address things I care about. And unfortunately, that meant the podcast fell by the wayside for a bit. But I have missed chatting with you. If you've hung around patiently waiting for my return, thank you and welcome back. And if you are new to my podcast, I should probably introduce myself. I'm Meg and based in London in the UK. This podcast is an extension of my life, which feels a bit like a curiosity cabinet of experiences, interests and inquiry. I chat about making and my love for natural materials, but always from the perspective of somebody deeply concerned about the environmental and ethical impacts of the materials we use. None of my experiments are intended to be prescriptive, but I hope that by sharing some of my adventures, I can tease out some perspectives and experiences that may be of interest, useful or even inspiring to you, and of course, hopefully entertaining too. If you want to follow my antics between episodes, you can find me on Instagram as Mrs M Curiosity Cabinet, and that is with underscores between each word, and on Ravelry as Meg, aka Mrs M, and that is with hyphens between each word. I will link all this information and anything I mention in the podcast in the show notes, which are available on my website, Mrs M's Curiosity Cabinet, or in the Ravelry group of the same name. So what do I have in store today? After a break of several months from podcasting, it's hard to know what to talk about. Which projects were more than just jolly makes? Which adventures in yarn and cloth prompted me to delve into my relationship with place, other makers, my creative process or my own psyche? Before I start talking about actual projects though, I would like to touch on something that has been unfolding in the online knitting and making sphere this year. In particular, an exploration about race, representation and inclusion. I know some people get very uncomfortable if craft podcasters talk about anything remotely resembling politics, but a podcast about the intersection between making and sustainability, to use an overused and often undefined term, is de facto political. I'm not going to go into the detail about the chain of words and actions that prompted numerous black, Asian and other minority ethnic makers to share their anger and pain at feeling underrepresented, excluded and even at times actively discriminated against in their chosen hobby, as well as in society more generally. That has been well documented by other podcasters, bloggers and Instagrammers. As confronting and uncomfortable as it may be, I think acknowledging that racism exists in the online craft sphere, just as in other areas of life, is no bad thing. In fact, it has been long overdue. It has led to more people, particularly white people, starting to recognise systemic racism in the world around us and our own internal, often unconscious, biases. I am listening to the thoughts and experiences that are being shared and am unpackaging these issues with a bit of a split prism. 
On the one hand, I am learning from a more diverse set of authors and speakers, getting to grips with terminology proffered by anti-racism activists, reading different works on the subject, unlearning diversity and anti-racism approaches learnt in previous decades of diversity training, accepting that some of that previous learning may have been well-intentioned at the time, but ultimately limited or flawed. In other words, I'm going through a process which many of my fellow white knitters and makers are also embarked upon. On the other hand, while listening to knitters exploring issues of race and watching the dynamics between speakers, I have also been recognising many issues and reactions that are familiar to me from my sustainability development background, and specifically as somebody who has researched the potential of online communities to nurture attitude and behaviour change. And in many ways, I suppose those similarities are not surprising. Much of today's environmental problems and lack of equity in the enjoyment of the world's resources are, just like racism, based on power structures, economic systems and institutions that have their roots in centuries of colonialism and in the exploitation of people and land by a handful of countries. This observation is absolutely not intended to detract from the efforts to dismantle racism or to take the spotlight off the issue. Anti-racism activism and sustainability activism are two different things, and each deserve attention in their own right. But because both issues share some root causes and involve addressing entrenched assumptions and power structures that are fiercely protected by vested interests, they also share some common themes and stumbling blocks. This means that no matter how uncomfortable it may be to unpackage racism and concepts like white privilege on the one hand, or environmental privilege on the other, any work we do on one front is likely to support and reinforce work on the other. Regarding my own podcast, there are a couple of things I would like to make clear. First up, I am eager for anybody, regardless of their skin colour, ethnic makeup, religion, gender, age, ability or disability, etc., to join me on a journey of inquiry about making. The only criteria is that we are prepared to explore the whys and wherefores of our relationship with making a material and the unintended consequences of these on other people, other species or the wider planet. And of course that we are respectful and generous with each other when exploring messy dilemmas and challenges. I mentioned this on Instagram but I think it's worth repeating as I know that some people use eco-concerns as a justification for emphasising ties with what they consider to be their land, whatever that actually means, or to retreat from the world and everybody they consider to be different to them. That is most definitely not what this podcast is about. Sustainability is all about rebalancing three pillars, the pressures on the planet, ethical concerns and viable economics in the original meaning of economics in order to, and here I quote the UN Brundtland Commission, meet the needs of the present without compromising the ability of future generations to meet their own needs. My focus is therefore always on connections and interrelations and, learning from nature, on the strength and resilience that comes from diversity. Secondly, my musings and explorations are based on my lived experience, and as such they are obviously not completely representative of anybody else's. How I navigate environmental and ethical considerations is based on a range of factors. I am a city-dwelling woman with no children. 
I live with chronic pain, but fortunately currently have a bit of a buffer in my circumstances that means I have a degree of choice. I grew up in a frugal but stable home with parents who were still very much rooted in a mindset of thrift and making. I approach challenges and dilemmas from the perspective of somebody who A, lives in Europe with a very specific mix of infrastructure, social amenities and values, and B, as somebody who has researched environmental sustainability issues, etc, etc. It therefore goes without saying that some of my musings may be similar to your experiences, others won't be, and there may be some analogies but with local or circumstantial tweaks. It's because of this that I always try to avoid dogmatic recommendations and rarely offer one-size-fits-all solutions. I know this can be infuriating at times, but I think there is much more merit in encouraging inquiry and in empowering exploration based on our respective circumstances, and also hopefully in creating an atmosphere where it feels safe to ask questions, make suggestions and unpick unfamiliar topics. To those of you who, like me, have the luxury of a degree of choice and control, I hope that my musings can either encourage or inspire you on your own journey. And to any listeners who feel that the approaches I explore are not necessarily available to you, whether that's due to time, financial, energy, geographic or climatic circumstances, I totally understand that your making, and your life for that matter, will look quite different. However, even though our options, choices and approaches may vary, I hope that we can find common ground in our eagerness to inquire about and find our way through the complex dilemmas that our materials and making may throw up. And I absolutely want to hear anybody's perspective. After all, rebalancing the environmental, ethical and economic pillars for a fairer, healthier, happier and more connected world involves all manner of inputs and actions, individual changes to practices, collective mindset shifts and some serious civic engagement to shift stubborn political and economic vested interests. So, what making projects will I actually talk about today? A number of my recent knitting projects and related online conversations have prompted me to mull over the distinction we seem to make these days between product and process knitting, so I thought I'd share those thoughts with you. Also, having just sewn a new-to-me skirt design, I am celebrating the engineering that underpins our garments. And finally, to keep this a relatively short re-entry into podcasting, I shall be sharing some inspiring gems. So I hope you are settled in with a whip and a favourite drink, or if you're using this podcast to ease you through some mundane chores, I hope it helps. Last year was a bit of an odd year for me, knitting-wise. Repetitive strain injury in my elbow seriously limited my knitting time for much of the year, and even meant periods of no knitting at all. I'm pleased to say that the RSI seems to have eased, but I'm still having to be careful as I need my hands and arms for other commitments. Not being able to knit, or knit as much as we want, is incredibly frustrating for knitters. And for me, it was just another annoyance to add to the general frustration of fibromyalgia. However, rather than waste energy on getting wound up about this, I decided on a strategy to help me maximise my enjoyment from my limited knitting time. 
In particular, I chose to focus on knitting one project at a time for the duration of the RSI. By ignoring the siren calls of various patterns and skeins of wool, I could minimise distraction and focus fully on those limited pockets of knitting that were available to me. This approach seems to be working for me. Not only did it generate a modest sense of momentum, even if I was only knitting in small bite-sized chunks, I also found it helped to calm my racing mind a little. So much so that I have pretty much adopted it as my general approach, even after the RSI abated, and I have been chipping away at a cardigan on this basis. It's Rachel Atkinson's Skip With Cardigan. This relatively simple cardigan is knit bottom up in one piece as far as the armpits. Then the sleeves are knit and all three items are joined at the yoke. The neckline is knit as part of the main body, so once the body is cast off, there is very little left to do. The pattern was written for Daughter of a Shepherd's Hebridean Fourply, but I am using a cone of good old Jameson and Smith's Jumperweight Shetland wool, which I happen to have in my wool pantry. Unsurprisingly, I went for a rich shade of brown. I've almost finished the cardigan now, with just the button bands left to go. The only thing that has stalled me a little is seaming the second sleeve. It's been years since I've knit a garment that needed seaming, and I remember why. Seaming dark stitches in the evening with poor eyesight is always challenging, but in light of my migraines, I need to schedule that second sleeve for a quiet, sunny afternoon. I know that some people shudder at the thought of knitting a cardigan in four-ply yarn, or fingering yarn as it's known in some places, let alone knitting it without the diversion of other projects. But I have really been enjoying the luxury of focusing on one thing at a time. I mentioned my single whip approach on Instagram a couple of times and was a little surprised by the number of people who told me I could never do that, I'm too much of a process knitter. As I approached these kind of comments as an invitation to delve deeper into my own habit, I naturally spent some of my knitting time mulling over whether I'm a product or a process knitter and what those terms even mean and how do they fit into my love of making, my environmental concerns and my interest in social psychology. When these comments first cropped up, I was working on the kind of project that typifies my knitting, so it proved to be a good starting point for these musings. The project in question was the Woodcut Shawl by Carrie Westerman from her book This Thing of Paper. I was knitting it in a single-ply laceweight Shetland wool. The yarn itself had been produced by Garthnor, but in this particular case it had been dyed by jewels of woolen flower with madder. When Carrie profiled the patterns in her book, the woodcut shawl was instantly one of my favourites, with its central garter stitch tri triangle, lattice lace edge and striking applied border. It complemented my aesthetic completely and I knew I would want to add it to my wardrobe. In that sense, even before I cast on the shawl, I knew I wanted the end product. That said, knitting the woodcut was a deeply satisfying and even delightful experience. So this didn't actually help me answer the question, am I a product or a process knitter? The more I thought about it, though, the more it occurred to me that this distinction between product and process knitting is actually a very recent one. For the majority of human history, making, be it sewing, knitting, fishnet making, basket weaving, woodworking, preserving, was a necessary fact of domestic life, of survival even. 
People turned their hand to making a lot of what they needed as off-the-shelf goods simply didn't exist, or if they did, they were very, very expensive. Also, in some cases, making was a way to supplement household income. Whether individuals enjoyed the process was, I suspect, neither here nor there. This may sound like harsh ancient history, but I can remember from my own childhood that my mum knitted most of our winter accessories and sewed a lot of our clothes, be it school uniforms or run-around dark garments cut down from my parents' old clothes. Before cheap fashion, it was just the most economic way to manage the household budget. And as late as the 70s, before the oil boom came to the Shetland Islands, many Shetlanders would still knit for income, whether by hand or machine. In these recent examples of history, I don't think enjoying the process got much of a look in. That's not to say that there was no enjoyment at all in all the needs must knitting our ancestors did. Looking through the Vintage Shetland Project book by Susan Crawford, it's clear that although many Shetlanders relied on knitting to clothe themselves and or generate income, they would also find ways to have fun with patterns when knitting for themselves. For example, they might include frivolous details or mimic styles they had seen in magazines. There were definitely moments of enjoyment in knitting back then, but most knitting, like most other types of making, was driven by necessity and was therefore probably a chore a lot of the time. As always, when I delve into the past for inspiration or understanding, I'm not advocating that rolling back time. Rather, in realising that I live in a time, place and relative circumstances that mean I have the luxury of choosing to spend my free time on knitting, I feel a sense of responsibility to acknowledge this privilege and approach it conscientiously. For me, that means not wasting valuable fibre resources or adding to the mound of stuff our society amasses but doesn't really use. And one of the ways I can do this is by working to merge the process and product aspect of my making, to pick projects and materials with care and to immerse myself fully in the process associated with each project. In practice, this means a number of things for me. First, I only pick projects that I really like. This may seem blindingly obvious, but there are so many ways that we can be encouraged to make something on a whim these days, often for very understandable reasons. For example, we might want to support a designer, or try out a new technique, or we might enjoy the camaraderie of a make-along. I am therefore pretty strict with myself about giving lots of thought to what I plan to knit and about not being seduced into making things purely for the process if I don't have a clear purpose for the end project, whether it's for me or somebody else. To use a food analogy, I love baking, but I'm not actually that keen on cakes or desserts. It therefore makes little sense for me to rustle up an ornate gatto or a decadent cream dessert, no matter how much I may enjoy the process, if I only have a small bite to eat and then leave the rest to go stale and be thrown away. So instead, I limit my love of baking sweet treats to when we have guests over or when I'm seeing friends, and instead I channel my love of baking into making bread or savoury pies. The same applies to knitting. I may be tempted by a pattern that includes a particular technique or motif, but if the pattern is not in a style that would suit or is too heavy or too thin to be practical, there is not much point in me wasting the yarn or my own time on it. Patterns therefore normally spend ages in my Ravelry favourites and queue before I cast them on. 
This is one of the ways of making sure that I'm really prepared to invest the time, resources and process with all its ups and downs in the end product. Secondly, I select my materials with care to help make sure I will enjoy working on the project. That's not to say that I only use expensive wool or luxury yarns so I don't fall out of love with a project. Rather, that I think about how a yarn might work for the project. What are its characteristics? How is it spun? What kind of stitches does it suit? For example, I know that I don't really enjoy wearing blocks of garter stitch as they often feel like a chainmail to me. So if a pattern really appeals to me, but involves a lot of garter stitch, I know I will need to knit it with a lofty woolen spun yarn, be that something like Jameson's or a more expensive indie blend with similar characteristics. Part of the process of aiming to merge product and process knitting is swatching. I know that that word can elicit groans from knitters, just as the word toile can from sewers, but swatching really does help with finding a pairing that means I will both enjoy the process of knitting and wearing the end product. As a knitter comes sewer, I have also realised what a luxury swatching actually is. To get a feel of how the fabric would both work up and wear before committing to the whole project is a luxury we don't really have in sewing. This commitment to swatching is not to say that there aren't times when the swatches just lie or that every project is a success. I've had my fair share of projects that I needed to unravel because the numbers lied or the wall just didn't work for the combination of stitches over the overall pattern. However, it's much easier to frog a project if I have enjoyed knitting it and know that I will enjoy working with the pattern and yarn again in different combinations. The final step in my effort to merge process and product knitting involves me thinking about the psychological twists and turn I'm likely to encounter in the project. When selecting a project, I try to be honest with myself about what will be the highs, but also the challenges in a project. How am I likely to feel about new, tricky or uncomfortable techniques? And how will I deal with such frustrations? Which part of the project might trip my boredom threshold and how will I handle those episodes? In other words, I try to go into a project with my eyes open, knowing that there are things that may irk me and have a game plan for how to deal with them. This is something I don't think we talk about much. In fact, I think we avoid it entirely. I often hear, well, why work on something if you're not enjoying it? Or knitting is supposed to be fun or knit on what makes you happy. All these statements are well intended, but I do find them a little puzzling at times. Yes, most of us knit for pleasure, as a hobby, but why would we expect this hobby to be fun all the time, to give us exactly what we want when we want it? Why would knitting be any different from our other pastime? When I think of the other activities I enjoy or have enjoyed down the years, most involve some boring, challenging or less enjoyable aspects. For example, I've made enough progress with the fibromyalgia to be able to enjoy working with clay again, and I'm having a great time with it. But the clean-up after a throwing session is an absolute bore. There's no way around that. Similarly, in my past, I was a very slow, long-distance runner. Despite the guaranteed discomfort of warm-ups and the downright pain of hill work, I loved running and I really miss it. Or what about learning to play an instrument? Making music can bring great enjoyment, but scales and arpeggio drills can become a tad boring at times. 
and practicing tricky note shifts in the same piece again and again can be frustrating. Ditto with weeding. Pulling out bindweed in the garden that is likely to regrow as soon as I turn my back is never as exciting as propagating new plants or planting up seedlings. I'm sure you can come up with many similar analogies based on the other activities you enjoy. So what is it that keeps us committed to other hobbies despite the messy or boring bits and can we use insights from them for our knitting? In my case, I think it's having a mindset that recognises challenges as an integral part of the process and works out how to deal with them head on. So why not acknowledge this in my knitting and be open about the strategies that can help me power through the challenges and the tedium a project might throw up? I, for example, struggle with twisted pearls. It's a stitch that really hurts my fingers and wrists. At the end of last year, I knit the Belmont cardigan by Gudrun Johnston, a beautiful lace cardigan with a very deep ribbed band that involved twisted knits and twisted pearls. I absolutely loved this design, so I faced a dilemma. Would I drop the twisted pearls for regular ones and just accept that the ribbing wouldn't look so neat, or would I pace myself carefully so I stopped long before the pain flared up? I called on my experience of running and learning the cello and opted for the latter. It meant it took what seemed like weeks to get through the waistband and that was a tad frustrating. But once through it, I could relax and enjoy the rest of the process without a painful wrist and all the knock-on effects for my other daily activities. I know a lot of people don't enjoy knitting sleeves, so they often refer to it as sleeve island. I don't actually mind them that much, but I recognise that knitting reams of stocking stitch, especially when knitting the round, can be a little samey after a while. Nothing will change that fact, but we can change the timing and or circumstances in which we work on such sections, and of course our mindset. Some people might therefore choose to knit on sleeves at a knit night so they can focus on conversation instead or to use them as easy knitting whilst watching favourite TV programmes. I tend to approach endless rows of stocking stitch as a useful way to decompress after days that involve frazzling travel into and around central London or to view the cadence of a simple stocking stitch as a good accompaniment to listening to music. Whilst I quite enjoy knitting sleeves, I can't say I'm particularly thrilled about picking up button bands, but by this stage, I'm so close to the finish line that I choose to visualise using the item in combination with other handmade garments, and that usually carries me through the process. There's obviously a lot more to be said about product and process, and it's a topic I hope to revisit at another time, probably in another format. In the meantime, though, I would be really interested to know whether you try to merge the product and process aspect of knitting, and if so, what steps, strategies or mindset shifts do you use? And if you don't actively do so, are there any projects where your enjoyment in the process and the product coincided? Projects where you were both pleased to get to the end so you could use an item, but also a little sad as the making process was such a delight? This question is not the same as, are you a single whip or multi-whip knitter? There are very good reasons why people choose to have multiple whips on the go, just as there are very good reasons for working on just one project at a time. 
My question is more about what, if anything, we do so that when we look at the cumulative time we are engaged with a particular project, we are maximising both the enjoyment of the process and the satisfaction with the end product. This next segment of the podcast follows on quite well from my musings about product and process, as it was prompted by me making about half a dozen metres or yards of bias tape so I could Hong Kong bind the seams of a skirt. I'm aware that I may be a little odd, but I enjoy making bias tape and binding seams. Making the tape not only appeals to my thrifty, resource-conscious mindset, but constructing and using it is also one of those slow, detailed tasks that quite appeals to my methodical personality. Why, though, had I decided to take this arguably unnecessarily slow approach to finishing a garment? Well, for the summer I made a new linen skirt using a new-to-me pattern, in particular the Decades of Style Stardust skirt. I've made a number of decades of style patterns before because A, I like their designs and B, their blocks seem to be a pretty good starting point for my body. This pattern company has two ranges. On the one hand, patterns inspired by the decades between 1920 and 1950s and on the other, its decades everyday range which are modern day garments with a hint of vintage inspiration. I've used a couple of patterns from the second range before, but the Stardust skirt was my first obviously vintage-inspired garment, in particular based on a popular 1930s style. It's designed as a calf-length skirt, which was not uncommon for the early and mid-30s. It has a couple of Godet panels, which are like slightly triangular inserts that you insert between the main panels, which create the sense of movement without creating the kind of fullness that you might get in a full or a semicircle skirt. This means two things. First, it's more fabric efficient. And secondly, it doesn't add unnecessary volume on the hips the way a circle skirt would. Due to my upper lower body proportions, I decided to shorten the skirt by approximately 6 inches to just below the knee, but otherwise I followed the pattern. I used a medium weight linen twill in a warm coppery pink, the kind of shade that goes really well with my beloved natural shades and browns. The twill has a lovely drape to it, which adds to the sense of movement, but still has enough body for a skirt. In my experience, though, twills fray dreadfully as do linens, so I needed to give some serious thought to how to finish the seams on this skirt. I do have an overlocker, but it needs to go back for repairs. In fact, I'm sure it spent more time in the repair shop than it has in use. But even if it were in working order, I've never been overly impressed with the finish it gives me on linen. Instead, I prefer to Hong Kong bind linen seams, so the raw edges are completely enclosed, even if that means extra work. However, there are also two other reasons why I go to this effort, and they are both a kind of a homage. Last month, I was re-hemming a pair of Mr M's trousers. They weren't particularly special trousers, just a pair of well-used cotton chinos that I had repaired before, judging from the mix of brown threads used. While I was inspecting the seams and buttons for any other repairs that might be needed, it struck me how much better constructed this everyday pair of trousers were than most of the -the off-the-peg items sold as women's wear. 
The hems at the back of the legs were reinforced with tape to protect them from being frayed by heels. There was also a contrasting softer fabric reinforcing the inside fly. The back seam allowance was larger to allow for the trousers to be taken out if necessary, and the back seam was also bias bound. The trousers were not only better constructed than most ladies wear, they were also made in a way that lent themselves to a longer lifespan. After examining all the attention to detail on this very ordinary pair of trousers, I realised two things. Even if ready-to-wear clothes retailers don't think it's worth bothering with a good finish for women's items, I think I am worth that additional investment of time, tape and effort. In the case of my stardust skirt, taking an extra afternoon to make tape and bind seams was my way of saying I am worth it. The other thing I realised was that seam binding really shows off the engineering of a garment. Seams are almost like the girders that both give structure and support to trousers, dresses, skirts, etc. The stardust skirt is a remarkably simple skirt to make. It involves seams to turn panels and godets into a tube, a zip, a very simple waistband and a hem. Despite its simplicity though, it is an extremely well-cut pattern that produces a line that is smart, understated and feminine. The subtlety and strength of this design is entirely due to the relative proportions of the panels and godets, the positioning of the slight flare and the placing of the grain line on each panel and godet. I was admiring the skirt's design whilst I was sewing it and then when I popped it on without the waistband just to check the size. It was remarkable and also slightly amusing how much joy I derived from experiencing good engineering in a garment. It may seem a little daft or even presumptuous to use the word engineering in this context. And of course, a skirt is not a bridge or a tunnel. It's not a transmission device or power plant. But if engineering is a use of applied maths and sciences to build things, we can recognise that garment design shares certain traits with some kinds of engineering. After all, many pattern cutters will tell us that their craft involves maths and ratios, that it involves recognising how far you can push tweaks before a structure becomes unsound and you have to start again. And whilst Garment designers may not sit down and calculate the stress coefficients of certain materials at different points along seams and darts. A good designer has an embedded knowledge of how different lines and features will perform in different materials and therefore what reinforcements are necessary. In light of all this, going to the trouble to bind the seams on my skirt was not only a way of paying a little homage to myself, but also to pay a little homage to the engineering skills that went into the design of this garment. I mentioned earlier that we are living in worrying times. In times like these, it's important to do what we can to support principles, regulations, projects and experiments we care about. But it's also important to shore up our defences so we can keep giving of ourselves. With this in mind, I've been finding inspiration, encouragement and even a kind of nurturing allyship from various other resources that deal with sustainability issues in other sectors. 
The first inspiring gem is the online journal The Plant Hunter, which explores, and I quote, the endlessly curious connection between people and plants. It draws equally on culture and horticulture, art and science, beauty and botany. I came across The Plant Hunter on Instagram and then started reading the online journal, which is at www.theplanthunter.com.au. It was founded by Sydney-based writer and landscape designer George Reed, but works with contributors from around the globe. Its online articles are organised around monthly themes. I've been dipping in and out of the articles, following links from one to the other, as so often happens with online journals. In a time when you feel like you're banging your head against a brick wall with the powers that be and vested interests, it can be comforting, uplifting and reinvigorating to read articles and musings by others who grasp and value nature, who understand our half-forgotten connectedness with nature and the chaotic, complex and wonderful connections between us and other species. And reading other people's frank observations about gardening, urban food growing, frugality and creativity as ways of taking a stand against the non-stop marketing and commodification of everything is a gentle reminder on the rough days that it makes sense to continue to care about these issues, even if many people don't seem to. I particularly enjoyed some of the articles around issue 47, Thrift, and also the recent articles called from Control to Connection, A New Ethos of Care, and On Politics, Love and Climate Change, both of which I will link to in the show notes. The other two inspiring gems are podcasts. The first is Gardens, Weeds and Words by Andrew O'Brien, who is at Andrew Timothy OB on Instagram, And the podcast is available via iTunes, and therefore I assume other podcast catchers too. I'd been following Andrew on Instagram for some time, but I was prompted to listen to his podcast when I heard a snippet of his interview with the garden designer Marion Boswell on one of his Instagram stories. The quote that drew me in was this, There's a whole issue with the client wants. So who is a client? It isn't just the person who is paying your bills. The client is the planet. The client is the land. The client is the contract we have with the land, that it looks after us if we look after it back. You understand why I was drawn in. Andrew has a confiding and mellifluous voice and a wonderful turn of phrase. Each podcast involves musing on gardening and how we interact with plants and the other wildlife in our gardens. Not so much a what-to-do or how-to-do kind of podcast, but rather a noticing of interactions, exploring of what it can mean to be a gardener and why gardening matters, no matter how tiny or unconventional a garden it may be. Most episodes I've listened to so far also include a passage from a gardening book, which prompts further musings, and an interview. I don't think it matters which order you listen to the podcasts in. So to get you started, I would recommend episode nine, Who is Gardening For? with Sarah Venn, who is a fabulous, no-nonsense force of nature. And episode five, Gardening for Wildlife with Kate Bradbury. The second podcast I wanted to flag up is a bit niche at first sight, but bear with me. It's called Building Sustainability by Heartwind Natural Building. 
It's quite a new podcast and there are only four episodes so far, but it involves interviews that explore the wide world of sustainability in the built environment with designers, builders, makers, dreamers and doers. The interviews range from a conversation with somebody who has built a home and life for his family in a one-planet development in Wales, with a female builder on how creating a culture of self-care on a building site is a radical act of anti-capitalism, and with a green woodworker who muses about... What? What, young man? Yeah, it's not time for your supper yet, though, is it? The Moggy Mummy is talking to some lovely listeners. Okay, so we'll get you off food in a minute. Sorry about that. As you probably gathered, my cat Dante wants his supper. Now, where was I? Yes, I was telling you about the third instalment of the Building Sustainability podcast, where a green woodworker talks about the hidden benefits of his craft. Even if you're not interested in self-building your home, working on a construction site or whittling spoons, these episodes contain insights, perspectives and aha moments that apply irrespective of what kind of home you might live in, what sector you work in or what craft you choose to practice on your own or or with other people. One of the things that also struck me while listening to the episodes from both these podcasts is how valuing diversity, actively seeking to include the previously disenfranchised and challenging oneself against ingrained biases and assumptions cropped up regularly. And in many ways, it gave me a sense of hope. The starting point and the phrasing used may have differed slightly depending on the sector, activity or craft and their respective prevailing practices and cultures. But it is heartening that many people actively involved in grassroots sustainability-related work do seem to understand that the current models and structures aren't really serving any of us, not individually, not as a society, and certainly not as a planet. And that part of reworking that balance between earth care, social justice, and a human and planet-centric economy involves rethinking and addressing ingrained attitudes and systems. Well, that feels like quite a good point to sign off now. I suspect you won't have to wait so long for the next instalment of my Curiosity Cabinet, as there are so many projects on the horizon and many thoughts rushing through my head. In the meantime, as always, I would love to hear your thoughts on my musings and how you navigate the messy journey of balancing our love of making with wider concerns. So until the next time, I hope you enjoy lots of pleasant hours of making, whatever your medium may be.